Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Hi there, this is part two of what will probably be a three-part tale. If you haven't checked out the cult of Hassan Isaba first, go back, check it out now. We'll be waiting. If you have, then welcome back. Now to unravel this part of a tale, we needs must flash forward 96 years, then work back a ways. We left off in 1124. Hassan Isaba had built a fiercely autonomous state in the north of Persia. In doing so, he arranged for the blood-soaked murders of close to 50 high-ranking Persians who had called for his destruction. On his way out, Hassan sued for peace in the only way he knew how. An assassin close to the Sultan stuck a dagger deep into the Sultan's floor, next to his bed, while he slept. This was a reminder Hassan was in fact a friend. If the men were enemies, the dagger would have been stuck elsewhere and Hassan had eyes everywhere. A peace treaty was agreed upon, and we'll return to that in a minute. What we need to know now is, just prior to where we pick up, another faction on the edge of the caliphate had come to prominence. Founded in a city on the border of modern-day Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan in 1079, and originally a vassal state, the Khwarezmian Empire had grown into one of the biggest empires in history. Its ruling family had ascended from slavery to freedom. By the mid-12th century, their aggressive expansion began. In 1198, the Khwarezmians reached their largest extent, ruling over much of Central Asia, Northern India, Pakistan, and Persia. Their ruler, Shah Allah al-Din Takish, didn't get to enjoy his empire for long, however. In 1200, a mouth abscess turned septic, killing him. Legend tells on his deathbed, Takish called his son and successor, Allah al-Din Muhammad, to his chamber. Now I believe in myth-making, but if true, Takish's words were rather karmic. Takish's alleged final words to his son were to the effect of, Whatever you do in life, you can do little wrong. But one thing you must never, ever do, is pick a fight with the barbarian hordes to the northeast of us. It took Muhammad II of Khwarezm till 1218 to allegedly ignore this alleged advice. And when he did, the fight he picked changed the course of history dramatically. The Mongols, those steppe barbarians, were an empire on the rise by 1218. And we'll be on that topic forever if I go into too much detail. But in short, for centuries the Chinese empires had the measure of the steppe people. Recognising how dangerous they were, they paid certain tribes protection money to leave them be, while helping foster intertribal rivalries among the others. The Mongols lived far north on the steppe, on less fertile land. They enjoyed no Chinese largesse. Compared to other tribes, they were fought poor scavengers, mostly living off whatever marmots, rats and fish they could catch, and drinking a lot of fermented milk. Sometime around 1162, a child was born to the tribe. He had a rough childhood, which included the tribe abandoning his family for some time, and a time he was enslaved by his father's enemies. But the boy proved tough and resourceful, 
and he secured the patronage of a steppe warlord, Torgil the Yong Khan, of the wealthy Karyad tribe. This young man, then known as Temujin, fought for the Yong Khan against other tribes, such as the Merkid, who once kidnapped his wife. Long story, we'll come back to it. The Tyachids, Tartars, and various others. He grew to become a fantastic strategist and an inspirational leader for this endless warfare, but he also tired of its pointlessness. Through warcraft and diplomacy, he put an end to the wars. By 1206, Temujin was rebranded Chinggis Khan, King of the Mongols. When in 1218, he sent a peaceful trading envoy to Muhammad II of Khwarezm, he ran a prosperous empire, which controlled the Chinese Western Xia and Jin dynasties, as well as the Karakitai, whose sprawling kingdom took in modern-day Chinese, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Tajik and Uzbek territory. The record suggests the great Khan had no intent other than to trade with his powerful neighbours. Muhammad was convinced, however, that the trade delegation was spies sent to reconnoitre his kingdom for a Mongol invasion. Muhammad ordered the envoys arrested, stole their goods, then disfigured these merchants' faces. When news reached Chinggis of their arrest, he sent a political envoy of three men to Khwarezm to defuse the situation. Muhammad had these three men executed. At news of this insult, Chinggis was apoplectic. He prepared his army for war. In March 1220, Muhammad II braced for what he thought was the entirety of Chinggis' army, coming via the roads one expected them to tread. Little did he realize he was watching the B-team. Chinggis was already within striking distance of the oasis city of Bukhara. He'd marched several thousand men for 2,000 miles through the Kizilkum Desert, a vast, inhospitable hellscape frequented by a handful of nomads, several Russian tortoise, and far too many six-foot-long monitor lizards. Nobody believed an army could survive in this desert, so nobody was looking for them. Now the Bukharans must have been comforted a little by the fact that they were inside a well-stocked, well-fortified city. Steppe barbarians, however deadly in battle, never carried siege engines. It is true, Chinggis and his men arrived with very little. They even lived off the meagre pickings of the desert so as not to be slowed down by a supply train. The Mongols took their time. They set up camp. They cut down a small forest to construct siege engines, ladders, trebuchets and catapults. They gave the people an ultimatum. Open the city gates to us and we will treat you favourably. Fight and we will show you no mercy. Bukhara chose to defend their city. Well, at least they made a half-hearted effort to. After three days of raining hellfire and thunder upon the city, the bulk of the 20,000 defenders attempted to flee, although one source I've read claimed that they charged towards, not away from, the Mongols. Whatever the case, they were butchered. The Mongols then stormed the city. A large contingent of soldiers who didn't charge or flee their attackers had set up in the citadel in the heart of the city. They managed to hold their attackers at bay for two weeks before the Mongol siege engines broke them. The 280 wealthiest men in the city were rounded up and ordered to show Chinggis's men where they buried their treasure. The pillage and eventual burning of the city began. 
Chinggis Khan, a man who was never known before to have actually entered a city. In his many battles, once won, he'd leave it to his generals to handle the looting and burning. Did enter Bukhara. He had a message for the survivors. O oh people, know that you have committed great sins, and that the great ones amongst you have committed these sins. If you ask me what proof I have of these words, I say it is because I am the punishment of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. The punishment of God was upon the caliphate as city after city fell. Those who surrendered were made vassals of the Mongol Empire. Those who put up a fight were wiped from the face of the earth. Muhammad II of Khwarezm fled to an island in the Caspian Sea, where he died of pleurisy weeks after his arrival. We'll come to what this meant for the assassins in a moment. Now back to where we left off. Peace was short-lived for the Ismaili. The Sultan that Hassan Isaba had so terrified died in 1126. His replacement, Sultan Sanjar, immediately sent an army into assassin territory with orders to kill all Ismaili they came across. The Sultan was not particularly anti-assassin, but he had a vizier, Muin al-Din Kashi, who particularly detested them. The invasion failed in its ultimate objective, but did lead to the massacre of two villages, Taz and Terefith. The assassins took revenge the way they best knew. On March 16, 1127, the vizier called on two of his most trusted servants. The sultan's birthday was coming up, and he needed to know which two of his prized horses should he gift him. The servants were, you guessed it, assassins, who proceeded to murder the living daylights out of Muin al-Din Kashi. By 1129, the Ismaili actually gaining territory, Mahmud, the Sultan of Isfahan, called for peace. Regional rulers passed on leading to power vacuums in the regions surrounding the Ismaili, leading to civil conflicts among the Sunni. In 1139, the Caliph of Baghdad, himself embroiled in the war, was captured by a Sultan named Masud. Moving his captive to the city of Miraga, it appears the Sultan had every intention of keeping the Caliph alive. Nobody expected a group of assassins would be capable of entering the compound and stabbing the Caliph to death. They were, they did, publicly celebrating the hit for a week afterwards. As a rule, however, there were fewer assassinations under Hassan's successor, Kia Burgers Umid, who would have preferred a peaceful existence. He passed in 1138, passing the mantle to his son Muhammad. Muhammad's reign saw just 14 assassinations, including another caliph. Of interest, a sultan named Daoud murdered in 1143. His death, it was claimed, was on behalf of the ruler of Mosul. It was also curious the killing was carried out not by Persian assassins, but by Syrians. Under father, then son, the assassins were generally far more concerned with the governance of their own people. They took to sending out missionaries to Syria, Georgia, and modern-day Afghanistan. Waves of violence against the Ismaili did continue from time to time, however. In Ray, the governor, a man named Abbas, launched a massacre of Ismaili in the city, afterwards proudly exhibiting a tower of skulls from the dead. 
Abbas was murdered by Sultan Masud of the Caliph debacle before the assassins could come for him. For all this violence, the Persian Ismaili largely resisted the urge to assassinate, for a while becoming a little boring and respectable. Then along come Muhammad's son, Hassan. Early on, the heir apparent made waves. He publicly preached the assassins needed a return to the revolutionary ways of his namesake, gathering a small army of followers. Hassan was something of a millenarian. He believed that when the millennium came, the Messiah would return, reinstate the faithful in paradise. Muhammad, concerned all these new extremists would undo all his hard work, had 250 of his son's followers arrested and put to death as heretics. Muhammad passed in 1162, ushering in Hassan's era. And for two years, Hassan behaved himself. But then in the middle of Ramadan in 1164, he announced the millennium was upon them. From now on, they would pray with their backs to Mecca. He announced to his people end times were coming. The hidden Imam had spoken to him and advised the holy law no longer applied to them. If you wish to break a fast, do so. Want a glass of wine? Go for it. Want a glass of wine while in prayer, with a band of musicians playing in the background for all to break the silence? Why not? They are righteous. They are saved from sin. All these old rules no longer applied to them. If there were ever a time the assassins ate pork, as Christian monks reported from Armenia, this might well be it. Hassan reinvented himself as a modern-day imam, a messiah-like figure. To drive home his message, everyone must enjoy their newfound freedom. He executed numerous Ismaili who were perfectly happy with the old ways. You better damn well be free, the boss commands it of you, seemed to be the mood of the day. The party lasted till 9th of January 1166, when Hassan's brother-in-law, in true assassin style, stabbed the imam to death. The next leader, Muhammad II, was altogether less controversial. He saw the rise of the Khwarezm. A handful of assassinations also happened in his time. An orthodoxy restored itself amongst the Ismaili. Muhammad died in 1210, passing the mantle to his son Jalal al-Din Hassan. Jalal was far more orthodox than any other Ismaili ruler, and he wished to leave the cultish practices and mountain fortresses behind them. He sent secret messages to the Caliph of Baghdad, asking how he could bring the Ismaili back into the fold. His reign saw a return towards orthodoxy and the burning of many of their more heretical texts. This did not mean the assassination stopped. The Persian assassins become a part of a machine, now killing on behalf of the Caliph of Baghdad. Soon word reached Persia of this new, unstoppable force in the east. Barbarian animists who believed God was the eternal blue sky, the Tengri in their language. Jalal al-Din Hassan was the first Muslim leader to reach out to the Mongols, proposing they too could be friends. Jalal passed soon after in 1221, passing the leadership to his nine-year-old son, Allah al-Din Muhammad. During his reign, the assassins picked up land lost by the rapidly crumbling Khwarezmian Empire and sent missionaries off to India. Allah's behavior, in turns cruel and eccentric or depressed and heavily intoxicated, led to his assassination in 1255. 
At this point, others worried his erratic behaviour was drawing bad attention from the Mongols. And nobody wanted the punishment of God banging at the fortress door. His son, Rukin al-Din, took over. Which leads us to the assassin's inevitable conflict with the Mongols. Back to the Mongol invasion. Under Chinggis, the Mongol army conquered wherever they went. They methodically took over all the major Central Asian cities. Samarkand, Balkh, Marv, and Nishapur all ceded to them sooner or later. Chinggis also controlled East Persia by the time of his passing in 1227. Everything went on hold for a few years, as often happened when a Khan died. Leaders would return to Mongolia to mourn, then call for a meeting, a Hurultai, to decide a new leader. Chinggis's son, Ogadai, ascended to the position and ordered the invasion to continue in 1230. In 1238, what was left of the Khwarezmian Empire, alongside the assassins, sent out envoys as far afield as China and England, begging for assistance. By 1240, most of Persia was under Mongol control, and the Great Khan turned towards Georgia, Armenia, and Mesopotamia. Dying Khan slowed the Mongol progress yet again, when Ogadai passed in 1241. Eastern Europe, Korea, and the assassins must have all breathed a huge sigh of relief at the sudden cessation of war. The following decade saw a few stops and starts. In 1246, the assassins sent an envoy to the coronation of Ogadai's son, Goyuk, and they were not warmly received. 1253, the great Khan was Chinggis's grandson, Monkey. He gave orders to his brother, Hulagu, to capture the Near East as far down as Egypt. Their first port of call was the assassins. In Allah al-Din's declining years, he chose to fight them. But on his murder, Rukin al-Din was quick to capitulate to the Mongol war machine. But this wasn't where the story ended. The assassins were spread over dozens of mountain fortresses. Expert warriors as the Mongols now surely were, they knew some of these fortresses required a year or longer to overthrow, a great deal of effort, and many lives. No one besides the Iman had really called it a day. Rukin al-Din was suddenly taken in as a valued employee of the Great Khan. His job? To visit every last mountain fortress and convince them all to surrender. His reward? He and his family would be kept safe in a lap of luxury, for now. Oh, and around 30 camels. Now I feel a little silly mentioning the camels, but it is mentioned in every book on the Mongols I've ever read, and a couple of books on the Ismailis. The Mongols must have presumed their imam wanted them for breeding purposes. But it seems nothing brought more joy to his life than to watch two male camels in a knock-em-down, drag-em-out street fight. To each their own, I guess. Rukin al-Din was taken from castle to castle, convincing most to surrender. Between the camel fighting and capitulations, he found time to marry a Mongol woman. As a few castles held out, the imam's value to the Khan came under question. Two fortresses, Lamassar and Gurduk, held out for a while. No longer of use, Rukin al-Din was murdered on his way back to Persia from the Great Khan. A small resistance movement hung around till the 1270s, at one point even retaking Alamut Castle. But the assassin's cult was all but over in Persia.
They, of course, survived, thrived even, in Syria. They even found themselves in places as far afield as India. We'll look at those tales in two weeks' time for the final part, The Old Man of the Mountain. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, and get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. Love to see you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.